Hi, I'm Alex Mason, host of Stock Stories. This is the podcast where we decode investing principles by analyzing the business behind the stock, as well as learning about mental models in order to help you become a better investor. You ready? Let's go. Welcome, 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 welcome to the Stock Stories Podcast. Yes, my name is Alex Mason. I'm your host and stock storyteller for today. Thank you so much for joining me. This is yet another episode of Stock Stories, and I hope you enjoyed last week's episode. We kind of jumped industries and looked at something that we haven't looked at in a while. We started looking at a car company which it's been a while since we talked about the automobile industry. And so we looked at General Motors. Hope you enjoyed that. If you haven't checked it out already, go back and check out episode 148, last week's episode. Today we have another episode for you today. But before we get to that, if you're a new listener, welcome. And just to let you know, this is the show where we decode mental models. We get into case studies of companies, all that fun stuff. And if you are a regular listener, thanks for tuning in again. I really appreciate you and and hope you're continuing to enjoy this series that we're going through. We're going through the entire S&P 500 and more. We're going through mental models. And I've got another company here for you today. Uh, This company is also in the auto industry, but it's actually an auto retailer. So it's a little bit different. Instead of an auto manufacturer, it's kind of on the other end, a little bit closer toward the spectrum of where Copart is, if you remember that episode where we talked about Copart. So without further ado, let's get into it. We're going to talk about AutoZone. All right, so let's talk about AutoZone, ticker symbol A-Z-O. So if you're not already familiar with AutoZone, AutoZone is this automotive parts and accessories retailer. So they sell things for your car, usually targeted toward people who like to do repair or installation themselves. So if you know how to install spark plugs and you need need some new spark plugs, you can go to AutoZone, get that. If you need some new windshield wipers or you have some trouble with your brakes or engine trouble, they, they have all sorts of parts. So they're basically an automotive retailer. So that's what AutoZone does in a nutshell. Now, the way that we structure these episodes which are case studies of companies, is first we look at the history to try to understand just the context of the company. How does this company fit within civilization or within broader society? Where did it come from? Why does it even exist? And then we look at what the business is like today. What is the basic business model that allows this company to make money in the here and now? And then we move on to financials. We can't invest in a company intelligently, at least in my opinion, without taking a look at the numbers. You've got to look at the math. Is the company actually making money? Are they making sales? Are they making profits? 
These are important things to know as individual investors. And then at the end, we'll close out with some thoughts about valuation and just general thoughts about the future. What are the future prospects of this company? This company may have been amazing in the past and may even be amazing in the present, but will it last? Remember, as potential investors in publicly traded companies, we don't really care too much about yesterday's growth. We don't care too much about yesterday's profits. At the end of the day, we are investing for our future, right? So we want the company to have a bright future. So we'll talk a little bit about the future at the end. So we'll be flowing from past to present to future. That is the structure of this episode. All right, so let's get into the history of AutoZone. How did AutoZone start? Uh, well, it was founded by a man. His name was J.R. Hyde III, and his nickname was Pitt, and it was founded by him back in the 1970s. So Pitt, the story with him was he was kind of like a regular college kid. He graduated from college, and he lived in a family, or he came up in a family that had a family business. And it was specifically his grandfather. His grandfather had this wholesale food company called Malone and Hyde Incorporated. So it was a company that sold food. And while he was working there, he began working on other divisions of the company. Now, a common theme with a lot of these stories is that a lot of the businesses that became titans of today were created as little side projects of previous existing businesses, which I find really interesting. So innovation in a way can breed innovation. And that's kind of what happened here. So Malone and Hyde is humming along as this wholesale food company. And J.R. Pitt Hyde decided he was going to start developing these other retail ideas or concepts. So he created this specialty retail division. And the first thing that he started out with was drugstores. Then he went to sporting goods stores. Then he went to supermarkets. And throughout all of this experimentation and market research, he came up with an idea. And he realized that there was no really good retail store that existed for people to go in order to take care of their car maintenance needs. There wasn't something particular for the car owner. So in 1979, he founded Auto Shack. The company was called Auto Shack, and it was founded in Forest City, Arkansas. Now, in just the first year of this business, they opened eight stores in two states. Now, I find this pretty incredible, especially after studying a bunch of different retailers with all sorts of histories and stories. Most of them, they usually get kind of a slow start and then they go through this period of explosive growth within maybe their first five to 10 years of being in business. But Auto Shack was different. Auto Shack had explosive growth kind of right from the get-go. And I imagine they were able to do this because they already had the backing of a well-established business. I mean, the success of one economic engine can in a way act to fuel another, which I think is pretty cool. So the vision for AutoShack was to create this transparent and pleasant shopping experience for the customer. And just like other areas of retail kind of had, but significantly or rather specifically for car parts. So that was the vision. Now the company did indeed experience some explosive growth pretty much right out of the gate by 1981. So this is just two years after the company was founded. They had 73 stores. 
<laughs> so pause and think about that for a moment. They had 73 stores in just two years. So they were going, going, going. They just went all out with this. And by 1984, that number grew to 194 stores. So in my view, pretty impressive growth right from the get-go. So they implemented a system called Express Parts. And what this did was it helped customers get these kind of hard-to-find auto parts. And they would special order them through wholesalers. So imagine back in the early 80s, your car breaks down or has some type of repair issue. And you have to fix it, right? You got to go figure out what's going on. Well, if you went to a typical shop or some store, maybe they don't have these parts because they're not standard and it's a hassle to go and get them. Well, AutoShack had this system where they made it a little bit easier for you to actually get those parts. So they started innovating in ways that they could serve their customers better with getting the right parts. They also had another program which actually still exists today called Loan a Tool. And that service was introduced that basically allowed customers to rent these specialized tools instead of buying them. And so think about like some sort of specialized construction job. If you've ever done a construction project or been a part of a construction project, you'll know that certain tasks are like really niche tasks that can get done very well with a very particular type of tool. It's not just, you know, a hammer and a drill and a nail and, and a bandsaw or whatever, just basic tools. Sometimes you need something very particular. And usually because these tools are particular, they cost a lot of money. So it doesn't really make sense for a DIYer, maybe someone like you or me, to just go out and spend thousands of dollars on this specialized tool if we just need it for just this one job and then we don't really need it anymore. So they instituted this program as another source of revenue growth. Now, eventually, this company, AutoShack, ended up changing its name to AutoZone. Part of it was there was some kind of legal dispute with a company that owned Radio Shack, if you remember uh, that company, Radio Shack. So they changed their name to AutoZone, and they started trading on the New York Stock Exchange and had their IPO in the early 90s, 1991. So during this period, and they were growing fast. They continued to grow really fast. They built their 1,000th store in 1995. So the other thing that they did was other than just having organic growth, they ended up growing through acquisitions of several smaller companies in order to grow their size. And you'll see this often in like highly fragmented industries. If a concept is really taking hold and a company is really successful, they'll use their cash to start buying up competitors really fast, even though they could continue a fast growth rate just by growing on their own. So that's what AutoZone did. And little by little, they started consolidating a very fragmented industry and an industry that didn't really exist much at this point in time either. So that's the history of AutoZone. All right, now moving on to the business overview. What does AutoZone do today? How, where are they today and how do they really make money? So just as a clarification, AutoZone does not actually repair cars or install equipment. What they do is make money by selling equipment. They sell auto parts and accessories to people, sometimes corporations or businesses, and that's what they do. They sell the parts. 
So the company now has over 6,000 stores across the United States, and they've also expanded into other areas as well. So they have stores in Puerto Rico, but their main international presence is in Mexico. Mexico has a decent number of stores, and then also they have a few stores in Brazil. So definitely, I wouldn't consider this like this huge multinational global firm, but they have expanded outside of the United States in recent years. And they sell a lot of different brands, but they've kind of made their own branding themselves for a few things. One of their brands that's really well-known is the Duralast brand. So you can buy Duralast batteries, brakes, all sorts of other parts. And as far as the culture of AutoZone, uh, one of the things I found interesting is they have these funny little acronyms for different things that they do. So one of their acronyms is called GOTCHA. That's spelled G-O-T-T-C-H-A. So that stands for going out to the customer's automobile. So imagine someone walking to an AutoZone store. They know what their problem is, but maybe they don't really know how to fix it or how to actually like figure things out physically. Well, the AutoZoner, the employee of the store, it's not uncommon for them to go out to the car with you and actually help you put that thing in the right place or point to the place where you need to to fix um, your device or whatever the case may be. So going out to the customer's automobile, and I think to me that symbolizes kind of like going out of your way to help someone because how many how many times do people just stand behind a counter and mumble something back to you and just say, all right, yeah, go figure it out. Like, do you want to buy it or not? And I appreciate this attitude because it at least it gives some kind of an air of like, hey, I'm really trying to help you. I'm willing to step outside from behind the counter, walk to your car and help you diagnose the actual problem. So that's one part of the company's culture is they have these little sayings. Another one that... I like is W-I-T-T-J-T-J-R. It's not exactly a smooth acronym, but it is a useful one. And it means what it takes to do the job right. So focus on doing the job well. Um, so just a little glimpse into AutoZone's culture. Now, obviously, I mentioned that they sell all these different parts and accessories. One asset that I think it's pretty significant for them, um, but I, I didn't find too much information about it. Maybe I should dig into it a little bit more is software actually. So software f- specifically for auto repair and it's called all data. So all data is software that gives you original equipment manufacturer, which is abbrevi- abbreviated OEM. So it gives you OEM collision and repair information And what they do is they sell that to body and repair shops. So it looks pretty interesting because it can help diagnose different car issues. So say your your car is having a structural issue or an electrical issue, and it sources that car repair intelligence from straight from the source, from the manufacturer, into a single platform that lets the repair technicians actually know what's wrong with your vehicle and exactly how to fix it. So here's an example of that. Imagine you get in a bad car accident and you have to take your car to the shop. So after you drop your car off, the technicians might use a software program like All Data to analyze the vehicle and then come up with an accurate estimate of the work. So it's 
good not just for figuring out figuring out what's wrong with your vehicle but then taking that information and saying okay you need to uh, weld at these points here and fix these wires here and based on the cost of these parts you can replace these or repair this one or reuse this over here and it'll come up with cost estimates for all those components in order to come up with an overall estimate so it seems like pretty cool software now all data does have some competitors there's one called Mitchell One, and there's a few other ones, but it seems like a pretty niche area, at least right now in the software realm. So I'd be interested to see where AutoZone takes this, especially because, as we know from studying so many software and technology firms on this show already, like software is basically just like dominating the earth right now. It's, it's basically taking over every business in one way or another. Um, so it'd be interesting to see where they take that. Now, as far as the geographical diversification of this business, so I mentioned that AutoZone is mainly a U.S.-based company. They do have some stores abroad. So how many of those stores are abroad? Well, about 10% of the stores are in Mexico. So they do have a decent presence there. And less than 1% are in Brazil. That's more of a, a newer market for them. So it does seem like in the United States, they're pretty much saturated in the market. I mean, they've got 6,000 stores total, and the vast majority of them are in the United States. So they pretty much have the United States covered as far as physical locations. And one thing I do like, though, as far as the expansion is concerned, they've been pretty methodical about it. They haven't just gone out and said, okay, we want to be in every country, and we're going to Europe, and we're going to Africa, and we're going to Asia. They've been very careful with their growth and to me, that is not so much a sign of weakness as it is a sign of strength because a lot of successful businesses, especially businesses that have been growing as quickly or quicker than AutoZone, they have enough growth to justify to potential lenders and creditors, hey, I'm growing really fast, help me grow even faster and take out a bunch of debt to go just multiply their store counts super crazy and then guess what, they burn out. So I like AutoZone's methodical approach with this. They've been around for, I think, enough time now, a few decades, to show that they can actually continue to grow slowly but steadily. And, well, the growth is more slow now, but it was definitely fast back in the 80s and 90s. So what does AutoZone sell? Let's get a little bit more specific um, other than just auto parts and accessories. So there are three major categories of things that AutoZone sells. So they sell products related to the failure of a vehicle. So things like batteries, engines, you know, brakes, compressors, things like that. Maintenance is the second category. So this is kind of what I think of. That's when I've actually shopped at AutoZone as a customer in the past. It was for things like this. So things like a mirror or they have windshield wipers, refrigerant, uh, all, all those kind of maintenance items. And then there's the discretionary category. So these are all those little things. Um, actually, I guess a mirror, I mentioned that in maintenance. I kind of see it as a maintenance item, but it's kind of a discretionary item, uh, really. But things like mirrors, floor mats, uh, tools, and then all the little little things at the counter that they sell too. So they kind of have the auto world covered, I think, with all of these different things. Now, I mentioned the growth. So they have been growing and 
It used to be pretty fast, as you could tell from the store count numbers I mentioned a few minutes ago. But now the store count growth has been slow. It's been about in the 2 to 3% range, more or less. And when management talks about how they're going to grow in the future, because, you know, they have basically saturated the U.S. market, they've mentioned a few different things. So the first is they want to expand in their DIY mature market. So they're, they're already known for being a strong DIY provider of auto parts and accessories in the United States. They basically want to maintain that position, but they want to improve how they're delivering to their customers, uh, especially in the age of like virtually same-day shipping that we have with Amazon now. AutoZone is competing in a way, and they're allowing in-store pickup of parts. They're, they're now able to ship via their website, Um, so that can kind of, uh, put them at parity in some ways with a massive retailer like an Amazon. Um, they also have plans to increase their international business. So they want to keep growing in places like Mexico and Brazil. And then the third part, which I think is probably the most interesting is they want to increase their commercial business. So right now management says they only have about a 4% market share in this commercial business. So this is selling auto parts and accessories to other businesses. Now, as you can imagine, when they sell the businesses, it's not like onesie, twosie, we're going to buy windshield wipers here and refrigerant over here. It's we're going to buy a lot of stock at once because we're large businesses that need to maintain large fleets of vehicles or whatever the case may be. So that's kind of the story there of where management wants to go in the future. So another thing is that, you know, I mentioned Amazon. That's a competitor, very real competitor. AutoZone also competes with other automotive retailers. For example, there's the Pet Boys brand, and there's your regular neighborhood hardware store. There's larger retailers like Walmart that they have to compete with. The thing that I think is AutoZone's competitive advantage, though, is just they're so niche. They're so niche. There's like... They like corner the market in this very particular area that a lot of people happen to be potential customers in. Um, why would you go to a Walmart that might have, I don't know, two or three types of a battery, let's just say, versus AutoZone where you can go in there, you can get the exact make and model of battery recommended by your manufacturer and you can have it right there and you just know that it's going to work because the selection is better. The customer service is more tailored to you as a customer, as opposed to maybe someone who works at Walmart. Maybe there's only one or two associates that even know anything about that section of the store, which is tucked away in the back. (laughs) So there's, I think a real competitive advantage there. I think if they really hone in on that online piece and on the commercial business piece, that they can continue to be pretty formidable going into this next decade. All right, so now let's talk about the financials. Remember, we can't talk about a business without talking about the money, right? (laughs) A business has to make money at the end of the day. So let's look at the numbers. Now, for the sake of simplicity, as I usually do on the show, I'm not going to go through a whole ton of data here on a podcast because That's just, frankly, I think information overload for this type of format, and it's just not necessary to get a big picture view of what's actually going on. 
So what I'm going to be doing here is comparing two sets of numbers, fiscal year 2012 and fiscal year 2019. So we'll get a snapshot of the past several years and kind of see where the trends are going. So first and foremost, how did this business perform sales-wise? Sales, you got to have sales. In 2012, AutoZone made about $8.5 billion in sales. So pretty strong, pretty big business here. In 2019, that number increased to about $12.5 billion. So they were able to increase their top line revenue about 5.5% on average every year, which is not bad, kind of a slow grower-ish. You know, those are the kind of the feelings I'm getting here. But wait, the story's not over. So let's go over to net income now. How much profit is the business making? In 2012, AutoZone made a little over $900 million. In 2019, they made about $1.7 billion. So hey, they were able to actually increase profits by 9% annually, which is pretty good, I think, for a business of this size and maturity level. Now, moving on to other numbers. So we should also talk about earnings per share. So how much money did you and I as owners get in the business? What was our cut of the profit if we were investors in this business? Well, we went from about $23 per share in earnings to about $72 per share in earnings. So, wow, that's like a big jump, right? Over a seven-year period, you went from 23 to 72. Now, how the math works out is this is about a 17% annual growth in earnings per share. Okay, something's going on here, right? Because if you're with me so far, you're thinking, okay, sales, eh, all right, slow-ish growth. Net income, all right, faster growth. Earnings per share, whoa, how do we get 17% annual earnings per share growth? So this is definitely something worthy of a little more investigation. I mean, for a company that doesn't grow sales or earnings at a spectacular pace, this is great. So we'll come back to this in a moment. Now let's turn our attention to the balance sheet. Remember the balance sheet, this is the part of the financial statements that tells us what the company owns versus what the company owes. It's kind of like the net worth statement of the business. Now I like to look at cash because liquidity is really important, especially during times like this, COVID-19, you know, businesses need to have cash on the books so they can do stuff, so they can reinvest, pay their employees, et cetera, et cetera. So AutoZone had about $100 million in cash in 2012, and recently they had about $1.7 billion. So their cash position has grown a lot. Now, looking at more recent years, say 2018, 2017, the cash pile was actually much lower than $1.7 billion. So it's a little misleading to just look at this number in isolation, but they have beefed up their cash reserves um, in the midst of covid and in the midst of the current environment. So that's that's good to see. As far as how much money they owe, so their long-term debt, they went from just under $4 billion in long-term debt to about $5.5 billion. So the debts increased at a moderate pace, kind of like most large companies in corporate America. Nothing too crazy to see here. And I looked at the structure of the debt as well. It's It seems relatively well-structured at first glance. I mean, they don't have these huge payments that are due in 2021 or 2022. The, the principal payments are spaced out relatively evenly over the next several years from what I saw. So nothing too alarming here, but not too great either. Another factor I'd like to look at is the total store count. So we know that AutoZone had pretty explosive growth in the 80s and 90s. 
and they have about 6,000 stores. So actually the exact number is in 2019, they had about 6,500 stores. And then in 2012, they had about 5,000. So, okay, about 4% year over year growth. And then as of the last two to three years, that's been more like two to 3% store growth. So it has, it has slowed for sure. Now, lastly, as far as finances, let's look at the financial statements, um, specifically the cash flow statement. So this is how much money is going into and out of the business. So first is operating cash flow. The company had 1.2 billion in operating cash flow in 2012 and just over 2 billion in operating cash flow in 2019. So their net income number is backed up by actual cash. It's growing at about 8% a year and they're making a couple billion dollars in cash. So that's that's great to see. As far as investing cash flows, it varies from year to year, of course, but it tends to hover around four to $500 million that's getting put back into the business. Now, management has stated that there's been some delayed investments in future stores and development, hence kind of that slower growth rate, right? But they expect that more investment will materialize in 2021. So they expect to build out their stores more, especially I noticed that they, were, they plan to actually open a decent number of stores in Mexico and Brazil next year. So that should be a, a good thing for their future growth internationally. As far as the financing cash flow, this fluctuates a lot as well. It's usually in the several hundred millions of dollars. So maybe 600, maybe 800 million. But uh, definitely some interesting things going on here in the cash flow statement, which brings us to the shares outstanding. So AutoZone does not pay a dividend, so nothing to talk about from a dividend perspective. But let's look at the shares outstanding. Remember, the reason shares outstanding matter for you and I as potential owners is that our cut of the profit must get split up amongst all the shares. And we only get the profit, the piece of that profit of the overall company based on the number of shares that we personally own. Now, there are two things that management can kind of do to influence this. One, they can dilute the shareholder base. So say they need to raise money and they don't necessarily want to go into debt to do it for whatever reason. They can go to investment bankers and say, hey, we'd like to raise some stock, raise some equity. So the investment bankers will go and they will create stock on the open market. And so say there's a billion shares outstanding and they increase it by 200 million shares. Okay, well, the company just got paid because all those shares flooding the market means all these people, a bunch of people are going to buy, institutions are going to buy those new shares and the money will go to the company. And of course, the investment bankers get a decent amount as well. But that's called share dilution. Now, imagine you're an existing owner of the stock and then share dilution occurs. Well, instead of earning, let's say, $1 per share, you're now 20% diluted. So your cut of the profits isn't $1 per share anymore since more shares exist. Your cut of the profit is more like around $0.80 per share. So this isn't good necessarily, um, in, especially in mature businesses, because now you have less profit. And if the company isn't growing very fast, then that dilution is going to eat into your overall return. Now, let's talk about what the opposite is. 
So we talked about share dilution. Now we have share buybacks or shares outstanding decreasing. When the shares outstanding decrease, your percentage of the profit increases. So you're getting more profit. And this is a great thing because overall, at the end of the day, if the earnings are going up and the shares are going down, then you kind of have this double effect. Your your percentage of the profits are going up as a result of the overall shares decreasing and the earnings increasing. So think about the fraction, earnings per share, earnings divided by the shares. So if the denominator is decreasing and the numerator is increasing, your overall number is going to increase as well. So that's that tends to bode well for investors. So I give all this background to say. <laughs> I got I to gotta put that out there just you know for the listeners who, who don't know those terms or those concepts yet. So all this to say, AutoZone has been killing it with the share buybacks. In 2012, they had about 37 million shares outstanding, which is not that much really. I mean, we looked at companies on the show that have like billions of shares that are out there. So this company only has 37 million shares outstanding, and that's as of 2012. Fast forward to 2019, guess how many shares outstanding they had? Just 23 million. That's it. So they've been able to decrease their share count at a rate of about 6.5% annually per year. And I think this is really impressive. They have an incredibly strong buyback program, and it's been going on for decades. So management has opted not necessarily to pay dividends to shareholders, which would be a taxable event, but they've opted to buy back the company stock and do it over and over and over again. And this has the result of increasing the investor's cut of the profits at a rate that's higher than the actual growth rate of the business because that money is effectively buying out all these other shareholders. And so if you hold on to your stock in AutoZone, your percentage of, pro- of the profits is gonna go up and it's gonna grow, go up a way, way lot faster than the net income just by itself. So AutoZone has been doing an amazing job here with returning cash to shareholders via share buybacks. Not all companies are good at this. In fact, a lot of them aren't. But AutoZone has definitely got this down pat. All right, now let's talk about the valuation as well as some closing thoughts about AutoZone. So AutoZone seems like a pretty solid business. It seems like they've maintained their strength within their niche for years They aren't the fastest growing business on the block, but hey, that doesn't matter. This company makes money, they make a lot of it, and they continue to grow and return cash to shareholders. I would kind of see this business as kind of a stalwart type of business in a a specific niche. Now, though there's competition, they continue to grow their store count little by little, year after year, and it's slow to around the 2 to 3% range, but I noticed that store closures rarely happen in any given year. This is not the kind of business that is building 200 stores a year and then closing 50 of them. They're not doing that. They're building 100, 200 stores a year, closing maybe, maybe one, maybe relocating one or two, but they're not really closing stores, which to me, that is a pretty good sign that generally they're pretty successful in the way that they invest capital. It sticks. It's not like they threw something against the wall and hope that it sticks. They do their research and figure out, okay, we're going to open a store here, here, and here. And then guess what? Those stores, they stay open. 
Now, I do wonder how this company will fare in the long term, because as I was researching this company, I started thinking about, you know, autonomous driving and self-driving cars and the future of, of cars and all of those kinds of things. Now, some people might say that a business like this is needed less because people will buy less cars, right? Now, I will kind of go the other way and say that people might buy less cars, but I think a better question to ask might be, will the overall number of cars on the road decrease and will they decrease or increase in complexity over time? So I think the general answer to this is that cars overall will continue to be on the road and they're going to continue to break down and need repair, just like cars have always have. I mean, cars will get better and better in performance and efficiency over the years. I definitely believe that. And they may even need less moving parts, especially with a lot of electric vehicles coming out now. But that doesn't change the fact that they're physical objects that break down over time. And so because of that, I think fundamentally the business model of AutoZone has a good chance at survival. Now, although AutoZone has long catered themselves to the DIY car repair person, I do believe it seems natural that they want to shift more toward increasing their commercial accounts um, because I do think that it is a big opportunity for them. Uh, so I think that may be something going forward that they'll be able to incorporate as opposed to, you know, just this DIYer. And that makes sense, right? Because if people will begin to rent autonomous vehicles in the future, then they don't need to buy cars necessarily, but someone needs to buy the car. Maybe it's Uber, maybe it's Lyft, maybe it's Tesla, maybe they're the car owners in the future, but they'll need to maintain their cars and source their parts from someone. So I do think it is critical that AutoZone improves in this area and gets more of those commercial accounts like management seems to to say and and says that they're focused on now we can't we can't end this episode without talking again about the buybacks okay (laughs) those buybacks are amazing so autozone again does not pay a dividend but think of this as like a backdoor dividend in the form of strong and consistent share repurchases I mean, over the past several years, they've reduced that share count by 6.5% annually, which is really strong. I like that management is focused on this. They keep things simple. Um, They did pause the buybacks during 2020 because of COVID-19, but already here at the end of 2020, they are resuming the buybacks yet again as of this episode. So that's encouraging to see. Um, Another thing I like that I noticed is they have an employee stock purchase program, including one for their executives. Now, an interesting tidbit is that the executives get a little bit of a sweeter deal when purchasing their stock. So they can actually buy more shares under the program at a discount than your regular AutoZone employees. So I like this incentive structure because it kind of makes it attractive for the people in power to invest in their business as a part owner. And I like that. I like that alignment of incentives. So that's that's another tidbit that I I like. So let's talk about the actual stock now. So the stock right now, as I'm recording this, it trades around $1,100 per share while making about $72 per share in earnings. So that's a price to earnings ratio of about 15 times earnings, which I think is pretty reasonable for a company that this that is this mature, that has pretty stable cash flows. 
So yeah, I'm, I'm liking this. The net income, the profits, they grow somewhere in the six to 10% range, pretty solid. You know, you get a nice a juicing of that via the share buybacks. So the total earnings per share growth is, you know, pretty good. And I find that impressive given, given the valuation. So I think there's a good setup right now to potentially, again, I don't know the future, but potentially achieve double digit returns with this stock. I mean, let's, let's assume, for example, conservative 6% profit growth uh, every year. And then let's assume that they continue their share buyback program and they reduce it by about 6% annually. So if you add those two components together, if you have the same multiple of 15 times earnings, then you're going to get 12% annually. Now, again, this is just like a very hypothetical example. I'm not predicting the future. I will say that I think, you know, this is one potential scenario. Now, assuming the company is trading around that same premium, then yeah, you'll get the return on the stock equivalent to the return you get in the growth in earnings per share because stock prices over the long term do follow earnings and they follow earnings per share. They follow the cash (laughs) over the long term. Now, I do think a major risk with this business is, I mean, they could get attacked by online retailers who turn their eyes toward this niche a little more closely. I mean, AutoZone was built on the physical brick and mortar retail model. And they have things like next day shipping. They've improved their website over the years. So they're doing, they're doing good things, but they're going to need to stay nimble because, you know, Walmart could come in and, and change something with how they're doing it. Amazon certainly has a foothold in retailing that's very powerful. So they'll have to stay nimble in this area. And I suspect that maybe why this stock is trading at about 15 times earnings as opposed to, you know, 17 times earnings or 20 times earnings, which many other large mature companies are trading at multiples like that. So I think that may be why. But AutoZone is going to have to to watch out for this and make sure that they stay competitive. So overall, yeah, I like the business. It's it's also pretty recession-proof too, uh, similar to the numbers when we were looking at Copart some time ago. I looked at the numbers for AutoZone back during the last recession. So 2008, 2009, and 2010. And in each of those years, guess what? The sales, the profits, they kept going up little by little. I mean, this is not the type of business with shoot the lights out growth. They're definitely mature, but it seems like a steady compounder that makes money little by little each year. And just for fun, I, I ran some... I ran some numbers to see what you would have made with AutoZone had you invested in the past. So if you had invested 25 years ago, so in 2005 and held through 2020, you would have compounded your money at 16% annually. If you did that 15 years ago, so um, oh, did I say 2005? I meant 1995. 1995 to 2020, you would have compounded your money at 16% annually. If you had invested 15 years ago from 2005 to now, you would have compounded your money at 17% annually. And check this out. If you had invested 10 years ago in 2010, which was during the last recession and uh, one of the major stock crashes, you would have compounded your money at 20% annually, 
which is frankly amazing. The company does not pay a dividend and they don't even grow their earnings or sales that fast. (laughs) But if you combine really steady sales and earnings growth along with a really great share buyback program, you can really move your earnings per share up and thus your stock price up. So just a little bit of uh, information for you there. I found that interesting and really wanted to, to share that with you. So that's what I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening and just hearing my thoughts today on this topic. Uh, this is the Stock Stories Podcast. My name is Alex. I am your host and your stock storyteller. If you have any questions or comments for me, I'd love to hear from you, especially if you just want to talk about stocks. I mean, <laughs> that's why I'm here, right? So uh, reach out to me on Instagram at Stock Storyteller. Send me an email alex at stockstoriespodcast.com and yeah happy investing talk to you soon presented here on Stock Stories is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. You and you alone are responsible for your investment and financial decisions. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, or financial advisor that can analyze your specific situation in the context of your goals and circumstances.